Hello, and welcome to the Bite Size Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Shiroki, and today we will be looking at ways of interpreting the Bible. We will be looking at the two main ways that people interpret the Bible. In this, I'm going to break this up into two parts. So in this first part, we will look at the allegorical method. And then in the second part, we will look at the literal method, also known as the grammatical historical method. In this part, we will look at what I'm going to do actually is read directly out of a book called Things to Come, written by J. Dwight Pentecost. This is a um, it's described as a study in biblical eschatology. And um, basically what he does is goes through the Bible and just gives, um, you know, a great breakdown of how the Bible is interpreted and makes a lot of incredible connections. The book's great. I highly recommend it to anybody that's looking to expand their knowledge and understanding of why we read the Bible and how to read the Bible. So again, I think it's important to establish this early on in this podcast series. And um, again, I've done, you know, many episodes up to this point and not really explained how I interpret the Bible and why I interpret it the way I do. And I subscribe to the literal method aka the grammatical historical method and in this episode i plan on this two-part episode i plan on laying out the foundation and the reasoning for why i believe the literal method is the only way the bible should be interpreted so without any further ado let's get started All right, so like I said, this first part of looking at ways of interpreting the Bible, we are going to look at the allegorical method. And um, before I get into that, I just want to quickly throw out the definition of eschatology. And this is from Webster's uh, Dictionary, and it simply says, a branch of theology concerned with the final events in the history of the world or of humankind. So again, this is focusing on, um, you know, things to come. The book is called Things to Come because we are looking at things basically surrounding Revelation, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and things that are going to happen in the future. So let's get into it. Um, Like I said, I'm going to read directly out of chapter one. The Methods of Interpretation, this is the introduction of, again, this is a book, Things to Come, by J. Dwight Pentecost. Great resource given to me by my pastor, and I highly recommend it for anyone who's into the study of eschatology and is interested in understanding the events that are going on around us and the things to come. What what is what what is the groundwork being laid right now where is this all going so here we go all right introduction no question facing the student of eschatology is more important than the question of the method to be employed in the interpretation of the prophetic scriptures the adoption of different methods of interpretation has produced the variant eschatological positions 
and accounts for the divergent views within a system that confront the student of prophecy. The basic differences between the premillennial and amillennial schools and between the pre-tribulation and post-tribulation rapturists are hermeneutical, arising from the adoption of divergent and irreconcilable methods of interpretation. The basic issue between premillennialists and amillennialists is clearly drawn by Alice, who writes, One of the most marked features of premillennialism in all its forms is the emphasis which it places on the literal interpretation of Scripture. It is the insistent claim of its advocates that only when interpreted literally is the Bible interpreted truly, and they denounce as spiritualizers or allegorizers those who do not interpret the Bible with the same degree of literalness as they do. None have made this charge more pointedly than the dispensationalists. The question of literal versus figurative interpretation is, therefore, one which has to be faced at every outset. When Alice acknowledges that literal interpretation has always been a marked feature of premillennialism, he is in agreement with Feinberg, who writes, It can be shown that the reason the early church was premillennial was traceable to its interpretation of the word in a literal manner, whereas the cause of the departure from this view in later centuries of the history of the church is directly attributable to a change in method of interpretation beginning with Oregon in particular. Hamilton states, Now, we must frankly admit that a literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies gives us just such a picture of an earthly reign of the Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. That was the kind of a messianic kingdom that the Jews of the time of Christ were looking for on the basis of a literal interpretation of the Old Testament promises. That was the kind of a kingdom that the Sadducees were talking about when they ridiculed the idea of the resurrection of the body, drawing from our Lord the clearest statement of the characteristics of the future age that we have in the New Testament when he told them that they erred, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. The Jews were looking for just such a kingdom as that expected by those premillennialists who speak of the Jews holding a preeminent place in an earthly Jewish kingdom to be set up by the Messiah in Jerusalem. He is thus acknowledging that the basic difference between himself and an amillennialist and a premillennialist is not whether the scriptures teach such an earthly kingdom as the premillennialist teaches, but how the scriptures that teach just such an earthly kingdom are to be interpreted. Alice admits that the Old Testament prophecies, if literally interpreted, cannot be regarded as having been yet fulfilled or as being capable of fulfillment in this present age. Therefore, the anadec, the excuse me, the index, the antidecan to any discussion of the prophetic scriptures 
and the doctrines of eschatology is the establishment of the basic method of interpretation to be employed throughout. This is well observed by Pieters, who writes, The question whether the Old Testament prophecies concerning the people of God must be interpreted in their ordinary sense as other scriptures are interpreted or can properly be applied to the Christian church is called the question of spiritualization of prophecy. This is one of the major problems of biblical interpretation and confronts everyone who makes a serious study of the word of God. It is one of the chief keys to the differences of opinion between premillennialarians and the mass of Christian scholars. The former reject such spiritualization, the latter employ it. And as long as there is no agreement on this point, the debate is indeterminable and fruitless. And then A, the problem. If Rutgers be correct when he says of the premillennialist, I regard their interpretation of scripture as the fundamental error. And if the acknowledged difference between premillennialism and amillennialism rests on the basic proposition of the method to be used in interpreting scriptures, the fundamental problem to be studied at the outset of any consideration of eschatology is that of the hermeneutics of prophecy. It is the purpose of this study to examine the important methods currently advocated as the proper way to interpret scripture as to have a clear understanding of the difference in the methods to study the history of the doctrine so as to be able to trace the divergent methods to their source and to outline the rules to be employed in the interpretation so as to be able to apply correctly the established method of interpretation. Point B, the importance of the study. The primary need for a system of hermeneutics is to ascertain the meaning of the word of God. It is obvious that such widely divergent views as premillennialism and amillennialism and pre-tribulation and post-tribulation rapturism cannot all be right. Since the interpreter is not handling a book of human origin, but the word of God, he must be equipped with an accurate method of interpretation or error will be the necessary result of his study. The fact that the word of God cannot be correctly interpreted apart from a correct method of and sound rules for interpretation gives the study its supreme importance. While many diverse methods of interpreting the scriptures have been compounded during the course of the history of interpretation, there are but two methods of interpretation which have a vital effect on eschatology, the allegorical and the grammatical historical methods. The literal method of, is generally held to be synonymous with the grammatical historical method and will be so used throughout this discussion. These two methods will be considered in detail. Now we'll look at the allegorical method. An ancient method of interpretation, which has had a current revival, is the allegorical method. The definition of the allegorical method. Angus Green defined an allegory as any statement of supposed fact which admits of a literal interpretation 
and yet requires or justly admits a moral or figurative one is called an allegory. It is to narrative or story what trope is to single words, adding to the literal meaning of the terms employed a moral or or spiritual one. Sometimes the allegory is pure, that is, contains no direct reference to the application of it, as in the history of the prodigal son. Sometimes it is mixed, as in Psalm 80, where it is plainly intimated in verse 17 that the Jews are the people whom the vine is intended to represent. Ram defines the allegorical method thus. Allegoricalism is the method of interpreting a literary text that regards the literal sense as the vehicle for a secondary, more spiritual, and more profound sense. In this method, the historical important is either denied or ignored, and the emphasis is placed entirely on a secondary sense so that the original words and events have little or no significance. Frisch <clears throat> summarizes, summarizes it thus. According to this method, the literal and historical sense of Scripture is completely ignored, and every word and event is made an allegory of some kind, either to escape theological difficulties or to maintain certain peculiar religious views. It would seem that the purpose of the allegorical method is not to interpret Scripture, but to pervert the true meaning of Scripture albeit under the guise of seeking a deeper or more spiritual meaning. B. The dangers of an allegorical method. The allegorical method is fraught with dangers which render it unacceptable to the interpreter of the word. 1. The first great danger of the allegorical method is that it does not interpret scripture. Terry says, It will be noticed at once that its habit is to disregard the common signification of words and give wing to all manner of fanciful speculation. It does not draw out the legitimate meaning of an author's language, but foists into it whatever the whim or fancy of an interpreter may desire. As a system, therefore, it puts itself beyond all well-defined principles and laws. Angus Green expresses the same danger when they write, there is unlimited scope for fancy if once the principle be admitted and the only basis of the exposition is found in the mind of the expositor. The scheme can yield no interpretation, properly so called, although possibly some valuable truths may be illustrated. Point two. The above quotation suggests also a second great danger in the allegorical method. The basic authority in interpretation ceases to be the scriptures, but the mind of the interpreter. The interpretation may then be twisted by the interpreter's doctrinal positions, the authority of the church to which the interpreter adheres, his social or educational background, or a host of other factors. Jerome complains that the faultiness style of teaching is to corrupt the meaning of scripture and to drag its reluctant utterance to our own will, making scripture mysteries out of our own imaginations. Farrer adds, when once the principle of allegory is admitted, when once we start 
with the rule that whole passages and books of scripture say one thing when they mean another, the reader is delivered, bound, hand and foot to the caprice of the interpreter. Point three, a third great danger in the allegorical method is that one is left without any means by which the conclusions of the interpreter may be tested. The above author states, he can be sure of absolutely nothing except what is dictated to him by the church. And in all ages, the authority of the church has been falsely claimed for the presumptuous tyranny of false prevalent opinions. Ram adds, to state that the principal meaning of the Bible is a second sense meaning and that the principal method of interpreting is spiritualizing is to open the door to almost uncontrolled speculation and imagination. For this reason, we have insisted that the control in interpretation is the literal method. That these dangers exist and that the method of interpretation is used to pervert scripture is admitted by Alice, who is himself an advocate of the allegorical method in the field of eschatology when he says, whether the figurative or spiritual interpretation of a given passage is justified or not depends solely upon whether it gives the true meaning. If it is used to, in, if it is used to empty words of their plain and obvious meaning to read out of them what is clearly intended by them, then allegorizing or spiritualizing is a term of reproach, which is well merited. Thus, the great dangers inherent in this system are that it takes away the authority of Scripture, leaves us without any basis on which interpretations may be tested, reduced Scripture to what seems reasonable to the interpreter, and, as a result, makes true interpretation of Scripture impossible. C. The New Testament use of allegory. In order to justify the use of the allegorical method, it is often argued that the New Testament itself employs this method, and thus it must be a justifiable method of interpretation. Point one. In the first place, reference is frequently made to the to Galatians chapter four, verses twenty-one to thirty-one, where Paul himself is said to use the allegorical method. On this usage of allegory, Farrer observes, <clears throat> of allegories which in any way resemble those of Phileo or of the fathers and the schoolmen, I can find in the New Testament but one, Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. It may be merely intended as an argumentum ad hominem. It is not at all essential to the general argument. It has no particular, no particle of demonstrative force. In any case, it leaves untouched the actual history. <clears throat> Excuse me. But whatever view we take of it, the occurrence of one such allegory in the epistle of St. Paul no more sanctions the universal application of the method than a few New Testament allusions to the Haggadah compel us to accept the culminations of the Midrashim or a few quotations from Greek poets prove the divine authority of all pagan literature. 
Gilbert, in the same vein, concludes, Since Paul explained one historical event of the Old Testament allegorically, it seems likely that he admitted the possibility of applying the principle of allegory elsewhere. But the fact that his letters show no other unmistakable illustration obviously suggests either that he did not feel himself competent to unfold the allegorical meaning of Scripture, or, what is more probable, that he was better satisfied on the whole to give his readers the plain primary sense of the text. Concerning the use of this method by other New Testament writers, Farrer concludes, The better Jewish theory, purified in Christianity, takes the teachings of the old dispensation literally, but sees in them, as did St. Paul, the shadow and germ of future developments. Allegory, though once used by St. Paul by way of passing illustration, is unknown to the other apostles and is never sanctioned by Christ. It must be carefully observed that in Galatians 4, 21-31, Paul is not using an allegorical method of interpreting the Old Testament, but was explaining an allegory. These are two entirely different things. Scripture abounds in allegories, whether types, symbols, or parables. These are accepted and legitimate media of communication of thought. They do not call for an allegorical method of interpretation, which would deny the literal or historical antecedent and use the allegory simply as a springboard for the interpreter's imagination. They do call for a special type of hermeneutics, which will be considered later. But the use of allegories is not justification for the allegorical method of interpretation. It would be concluded that the usage <clears throat> in Galatians of the Old Testament would be an example of interpretation of an allegory and would not justify the universal application of the allegorical method to all scripture. Point two, a second argument used to justify the allegorical method is the New Testament usage made of types. It is recognized that the New Testament makes typical application of the old. On the basis, it is argued that the New Testament uses the allegorical method of interpretation, contending that the interpretation and application of types is an allegorical method of interpretation. Alice argues, while dispensationalists are extreme literalists, they are very inconsistent ones. They are literalists in interpreting prophecy, but in the interpreting of history, they carry the principle of typical interpretation of to an extreme, which has rarely been exceeded even by the most ardent of allegorizers. In reply to the accusation that because one interprets types, he is using the allegorical method, it must be emphasized that the interpretation of types is not the same as allegorical interpretation. The efficacy of the type depends on the literal interpretation of the literal antecedent. In order to convey truth concerning the spiritual realm with which realm we are not familiar, there must be instruction in a realm with which we are familiar so that by a transference of what is literally true in one realm, we may learn what is true in the other realm. There must be a literal parallel, parallelism 
between the type and the anti-type for the type to be of any value. The individual who allegorizes a type will never arrive at a true interpretation. The only way to discern the meaning of the type is through a transference of literal ideas from the natural to the spiritual realm. Schaefer Well writes, Types and symbols, the interpreter must be careful not to treat plain statements of scripture as is demanded of language couched in figurative expressions. A truth already expressed will bear repetition at this point. There is all the difference possible in interpreting a scripture allegory on one hand and the allegorizing of a plain scripture on the other hand. It is concluded then that the scripture use of types does not give sanction to the allegorical method of interpretation. That concludes that first section there. Um, again, that's covering the allegorical method. And I want to finish up with just a quick point here. Because one reason why I subscribe to the literal method is because Jesus himself used the literal method in interpreting Old Testament scripture. So, you know, if you claim to be a Christian, then you will believe the words of the person you claim to believe in, who you claim is your Savior and Lord. So let's look at what Jesus says about the story of Jonah, which is a widely mocked story amongst secularists as well as the emergent church, the whatever you want to call them, these new school, um, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing, I'll call them at this point. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. And uh, this is then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he, Jesus, answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. And then the note quickly, my uh, Spirit-Filled Life, New King James Version Bible for uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 38-39 says, Further evidence of the blindness and opposition of the religious leaders is their demand for a display of supernatural power that will authenticate Jesus as the Messiah. They had already witnessed many such signs. The problem was not the lack of signs, but their own unfaithfulness to God. Later, they will refuse even the greatest sign of all, that of the resurrection. So Jesus there referenced the story of Jonah. So we're going to flip back and we're actually going to look at the story of Jonah. And we will start in Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 and read through to Jonah chapter 2 verse 10. 
states, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its, with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you. With the voice of thanksgiving, I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Quickly there, looking at the note here. So for verse uh, 17, the Lord had prepared indicates God's control of the situation. The great fish simply did what it was told. This is an obvious miracle, the precise details of which are not stated. We do not know if the fish was a specially created one or a modified well, nor do we know how Jonah breathed for 72 hours. God likely chose that Jonah stay inside the fish for three days and three nights because that was the time ancients thought someone needed to come back from Sheol. Hence, Jonah's return from the fish would represent a miraculous rescue from death and destruction. Jesus confirms the veracity of this Old Testament event and uses this incident to describe the time he would be in the heart of the earth preceding his resurrection. Um, that's just incredible. That's, you know, hey, it, it's fine. You, if you don't, if you don't believe, you don't believe just like the religious people, just like the, um, the scholars, the people that eventually ended up killing Jesus, you know, you can have your own interpretation. You can allegorize all you want, but right there, that's Jesus who was, both the creator of the fish, as well as the God man standing there talking to the scribes and Pharisees, giving a literal interpretation of an event that is considered foolishness and widely mocked. And here's why it's simple. We're going to flip it. We're going to finish in first Corinthians chapter two, verse 14 through chapter three, verse four. So starting at, again, 1 Corinthians 2.14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? 
but we have the mind of Christ. So I'm actually going to stop there. I just, I want to stress this point, the, the allegorical interpretation and the folly that's found in it. As you can see from the passage I read from Things to Come, you know, the way they break it down and kind of what I mentioned a few episodes ago, when it comes down to it, God is not the author of confusion. He's not going to give us a text that beautifully lays out him, his character, his expectations of us, what's right, what's wrong. He clearly lays out everything right there in black and white in the Bible, and it's to be interpreted literally. And again, there's over 7 billion people on the earth. It's ridiculous to think of this allegorical method as being applicable to the word of God, because again, does that mean that there's 7 billion plus interpretations out there of the word of God? Absolutely not. God, there's one God, there's one savior, there's one heaven, one earth, and there's there's one salvation, one mediator between man and God. That's Jesus Christ, the living son of God. So that concludes our look at part one of interpreting the Bible. That was the allegorical method. We will pick up next with the literal or grammatical historical method next. To quickly close out this whole allegorical thought and interpretation method, as you can see a couple times, the um, commentators noted there where basically, you know, this leads to um, uh, misinterpretations or injection of the interpreter's um, own opinions, thoughts, political sway, um, whatever you may call it into and actually um, mixes in with the, uh, I guess, word of God. Uh, but this this is why, and it explains the um, falling away that we're seeing right now, the emergent church beliefs that we're seeing. This explains why you have um, people calling themselves Christians that basically you couldn't even tell them from anyone else in the world because they are subjected to allegorical interpretation, which again, there is no foundation for that. There's, again, it opens your door to any, any thought of any particular person as opposed to using the word of God to shape yourself and your character People take their own thoughts and interpretations and try to fit whatever word, whatever scripture, whatever word of God they want to try to interpret into their own belief system or their own thoughts. Again, this is why you see so many, um, so many conflicting um, lifestyles that aren't acceptable and are spoken out against against in the Bible that are now being embraced. And I just saw an article this morning where the Church of England are basically saying that Christians should be punished for sharing our views, which it, it are covered in the First Amendment, thank God, in this country, at least up to this point. We'll see what happens with this new administration. But at this time, anyway, we are allowed to speak against things in our society that go against our religious views or our beliefs and what is clearly stated in the Bible. So again, if there's confusion, if you're confused as to, well, 
why does this person who calls himself a Christian think this way and talk this way? And then this other person who calls himself a Christian, they and they interpret the word of God and they say that they should or shouldn't do this X, Y or Z. That is why, because you have people using the allegorical method to basically say whatever they want. And you can find these false teachers and preachers, these wolves in sheep's clothing. You can find them everywhere. I saw a video recently where there's some guy down, I think it's in Atlanta, where this guy, he's he has this new big building, this new church. He's playing pop music, literally pop music in the middle of his church service. And then he's up on stage. I mean, it looks like a concert. It doesn't even... The fact that this guy's calling himself a preacher and calling it church, it again, it looks like a concert that people are going to. Again, people are looking for signs or looking for wonders because they don't have belief in their heart. They're not truly, they've never been introduced to the real living spirit of God. They're just following after a worldly false teacher and they're everywhere between the health and wealth people. And now you have people like this who are out there basically look like concert promoters or even people, people literally putting on a show for people just to get them to walk through the door. It's sickening. It's abuse of the word of God. They will be judged upon the things that they're doing. And the Bible says that teachers, preachers, leaders, these false teachers and leaders, these wolves in sheep's clothing will be held to a greater degree because they not only went astray themselves, but led others astray. So again, I just wanted to throw that in there. If you're confused again as to why there's some Christians that think this way and then some Christians that think another way. Again, look for the literal interpretation. Look at, look into the word of God. Pray, seek the Lord. We are to work at our own salvations with fear and trembling. It's a personal experience between you and your Savior, your only mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. So I love you enough to tell you the truth. I'll never use any of my own interpretation or thoughts to give you anything except what I see as the 100% what's in the word of God. And I go on centuries upon centuries of teaching, not these new school allegorical teachers who again, preach complete falsehoods and basically lead people astray all for the sake of their own glory. Because if you see those guys up on stage preaching, you can tell, I mean, with any spiritual discernment, you can see right away, they're not gifted by God. They're simply up there for their own glory and their own, they're getting their reward now on earth. Um, just like the Pharisees back in the day when they would fast or when they would give and they would, you know, have this like negative um, response to it, or they'd walk around looking all parched or they'd, um, you know, just show you know, what they're giving again, this is all they're receiving their glory right now, but none of it is spiritual. None of it's biblical and get into the word of God. That's why I do this Bible study to get into the raw word of the Lord and to preach and teach as best as I know. And as best as what I can read and what many other scholars and eschatologists and hermeneutic people we, we look at what's there in front of us in black and white 
Because again, God's not the altar of confusion. He's not going to lead you astray. So I just wanted to kind of wrap that up and just give that little explanation. So God bless. Have a great day.